Good morning. My name is Dustin, and I'm on staff here at South Point. For this entire year, we've been doing this slow read through the biblical book of Acts. And uh, where we are currently in the book, we are following the travels of a man named Paul as he goes all over the known world telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Paul's story has a lot of stuff going on. He's going city to city. He's being arrested. He's being beaten. He's being threatened. He's being ridiculed. But he's also seen God move in some extremely powerful ways. And last week, Jamie preached about Paul returning to Jerusalem, returning to the place where the church began all those years ago. And Paul reports about his journey and all of the things that God has been doing. Paul even takes up this huge offering on behalf of the church in Jerusalem because so many of the people there have left their homes and they're homeless just to follow Jesus. And so he takes this huge offering and he gives this money to them. And last week, Jamie unpacked how instead of being welcomed back into Jerusalem with open arms, that instead Paul comes to find out that a lot of the people there have been spreading rumors and lies about him. Saying that he's been preaching a gospel that says that the law isn't important and that the Jewish people should throw out all of their traditions. But it's not true. But regardless, the Jewish people have made up their mind about Paul and they decide they want to kill him. And they try to kill him. But before they can kill him, a Roman official and soldiers swoop into the area and they break up the fight. And they take Paul, and these Roman officials actually threaten to beat Paul to get the truth out of him. Why are they so angry at you? What's going on? And Paul says, you can't do that to me. I'm a Roman citizen. If you beat me without a trial, there are going to be consequences from the Roman government. And so this Roman official finds himself in this precarious situation. And he needs to get to the bottom of what's going on between Paul and these Israelites. Now, there's something at play here that's about to come even more to life in the passage we're going to read. And it's actually something that exists with roaring ferocity in America today. And that thing is political tension. Political tension. Now, I know that some of your guys' ears just perked up. And I know that some of your guys' ears just turned off. And I just want to clarify on the front end before we get into any of this that South Point Church is not affiliated with any political party or leaning, but rather our allegiance is to the one true Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so if you're one of those people that say, well, Jesus would have definitely been a Republican or Jesus definitely would have been a Democrat, I suggest to you that your understanding and picture of Jesus may not be complete, all right? Jesus is the creator of the universe, the Savior of the world. He is not a subscriber. He is the subscription, all right? And so I want to start there. And so if you thought that I was going to come up here and get political, that's never going to happen. But what I am going to do, because it's present in the text that we're about to read, is I'm going to talk about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in an environment where everything is political. Now this Roman official and even Paul find themselves in the middle of conflicting social views and religious views and political views. I mean, if you think America is a mess, Israel was a mess mess. Our circumstances are not unique. Division is nothing new. Political tension is nothing new. Maybe it just feels different to us when it's in our backyard. But you're going to have to live your life as a believer. You can't hide from the world. You can't run from it. But if you say that you're a follower of Jesus, there's a way that we are called to go about it because of who he is and because of what he has done. And so let's get into it before any of y'all run out of here at the mention of politics. But before we do, let's pray together. God, I pray that you speak through your word right now. I know that you're good, and I know that your desire for the world is that we 
bow down to you and find salvation in you. Not in any man-made institution. Jesus, you are the king. You're the savior of the world. Help us to get a clear picture of who you are and what you desire for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll have the words up on the screen, or you can grab one of our Acts journals, I believe. We're on page 131. And again, we are in this moment in Scripture where this Roman official is trying to get a picture, an idea of what's going on between Paul and these Israelites. It says this starting at verse 30. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jew, Paul, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now this is not Paul saying, I've never sinned. Actually, in one of Paul's letters, he'll go on to write, I am the chief sinner, there's no one worse than me. And so Paul's not saying he's perfect, but in this instant, Paul is saying, listen, all these things you've been saying about me, about the way that I preach the gospel, all of these things you're saying about me, they're not true. You're lying about me. Passage goes on to explain how these religious officials respond to Paul. It says this, it says, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So they slap Paul in the mouth. They're not trying to hear him. They aren't willing to acknowledge him. They don't even respond to him. They say, hey, you, stand him by him. Smack him in the mouth, please. Now there's a Bible verse written about this exact situation. And it says that if someone smacks you on the cheek, you should do what? You should turn your other cheek. And so obviously that's what Paul is going to do, Right? wrong. It turns out that Paul is human after all. It says, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Also, uh, just so you know, whitewashed wall is Paul's way of calling Ananias, the high priest, a hypocrite, and publicly disrespecting him. You're supposed to uphold the law. You're breaking the law. You are a hypocrite in front of all these people says then in verse 4, it says, Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And so first, Paul gives us a prime time example of what not to do. Paul doesn't write down that Paul disrespected to Ananias to say, That's what all of you should do. He's just writing down, This is what Paul did. But what we have to understand is it's wrong. It's actually a sin. And Paul realizes this in the verse that Paul's referring to is Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight that says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And so Paul not only backs off with the aggression, but if you read in the original language, what he does is he actually issues a public apology in front of everyone immediately when he hears the position of the person he's speaking to. He apologizes. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were the high priest. I shouldn't be speaking to you like that. Which brings us to the first thing Jesus' followers need to be doing in this political climate. And I promise you, a lot of you are not going to like this. Respect the position the person holds, even if you don't respect the person who holds the position. One more time. Respect the position the person holds, even if you don't respect the person who holds the position. 
And I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, nearly everyone is guilty of this, even Christians, probably especially Christians. Look back at every president, and you'll see Christians that didn't vote for that person openly mocking and disrespecting that person. What do you hear from Christians? Not my president. He's an idiot. He's the Antichrist. He shouldn't be president. And we've gotten comfortable with bludgeoning the character of the highest office one can hold in our country when God's word speaks directly against that. And we do it all the time. And maybe you're sitting there with your arms crossed saying, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Like, that doesn't apply anymore today. But to that, I say, look to Romans. And Paul doubles down and he writes this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Sounds serious. If that's not enough, uh, Peter writes in one of his letters, and if you didn't know, Peter and Paul butted heads from time to time, but Peter will go on to write in one of his letters, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Can I ask you something? Have you ever prayed for the well-being and success of a person you didn't vote for? As a believer, have you ever prayed for the well-being and success of a person you didn't vote for? Republicans, are you for real praying right now for the well-being and success of Joe Biden? Are you? Or do you laugh at him and share videos of him when he stumbles and pray for his downfall? Is that you? Democrats, did you ever once pray for the well-being and success of Donald Trump? Or did you share memes and video and proudly call him names with half the country? Man, we have fallen so far from God's command of respecting those in positions of power that not only are Christians openly mocking and slandering people, but pastors pastors are standing in the pulpit and instead of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are trying to make sure that their congregation votes for the candidate of their choosing. Are you kidding me? We look exactly like the rest of the world, if not worse. And that should bother you. That should bother us. Because the consequences of this, the consequences of us participating in this is that the world is watching and when we do this, we are building a wall between them and Jesus. We are pushing them away. It's not the circumstances of the world. The circumstances of, of the world aren't why they won't give Jesus a shot. We are the reason why they won't give Jesus a shot. And if you're offended by that, I'm okay with that. Pastor Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend politics, and when it is no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong evidence that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx were right, that religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. When it comes down to it, that's why we participate in this mudslinging, taking sides, name-calling, polarizing mess. That's why we take part, because we want to have it our way. Now, I can be driven by pride or fear or insecurity or any number of things, but that's what it boils down to. We want to be right. We want to win. We want the country to look like what we want it to look like. We want to win. Church, church, 
Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. I don't care who the president is. I don't care what America looks like. Jesus Christ is king. And if you believe that, then the person who sits in that office really doesn't matter. Because guess what? Ananias, this high priest that Paul just apologized to, this guy was corrupt, he was evil, he was a terrible leader. But Paul apologizes anyway. So the command isn't respect those in power as long as they're good. It's respect those in power even if they're corrupt because either way, God is good. And God is in control. And if you understand that, you're going to have hope and peace regardless of who is in office. So much so that you're going to be able to pray for the leaders you didn't vote for. You're going to be able to pray for the leaders that you despise. But if your hope and your faith and your witness to the world wavers, depending on who gets voted in where, you may want to check where your foundation is built because it might not be Jesus. Respect the position the person holds, even if you don't respect the person who holds the position. Why? Because we are called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers, driven by the grace and love that God has poured out over our lives, which is designed to be extended to everyone around us, not just half of the country, even to the people who we disagree with, even with the people who we would say are corrupt. And when you begin to do that, not only are you going to find peace of mind in this political climate, which is going to get worse, not only are you going to find peace of mind, but you might actually end up pointing someone to Jesus. But right now, jumping on the bandwagon of bashing the president and bashing the other side, if that's you, I promise you are wreaking more havoc and causing more hurt in the world and in the church than any atheist could ever dream to accomplish. You are pushing people away and it has to stop. And so Paul apologizes to the high priest. The text goes on in verse 6. says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. He said, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. Wait a minute, they were just trying to kill him two seconds ago. Now all of a sudden, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, the Roman official, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. So Paul is now refocused on Christ. He had his moment, he had a slip up, he snapped at them, and now he's focused again on Christ, and he chooses his next words carefully. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection, that's why I'm on trial. But actually, that's not why Paul is on trial. We talked about why Paul is on trial. We're on trial because collectively, the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying, Paul is saying that obeying God isn't important. He's telling us to throw out all of our Jewish traditions. That's why Paul's on trial. It's not because he believes in the resurrection. And to clarify, Paul is a Pharisee, but not really. This is a bit of wordsmithing on his part. Paul's a Pharisee insofar as he believes in resurrection. Now, a quick but important history lesson. These two groups, two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were formed during the time in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon. 
You can read about that in the book of Jeremiah. But God's people were exiled to Babylon, and the temple that they worshipped God, that they offered sacrifices in, that temple was destroyed. And so during this time, uh, the Jews in exile started to seek ways to honor God and stay in right standing with God because they could no longer sacrifice animals. So they needed to find a new way. And so they'd gather in these little Bible study groups called synagogues, and they'd seek ways to honor God. And from these studies came three groups. The first group was called the Essenes. And the Essenes were kind of like monks. They lived in isolation away from everyone. They separated themselves from the rest of the world. But then two big groups emerged from this, and they were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you see, the conclusion of the Pharisees was that being exiled was terrible. Like, that was horrible. We never want anything like that to happen again. And so to keep anything like that from happening again, we are going to follow every single iota of the law. Ceremonial law, civil law, moral law, doesn't matter. Give us a law. We're going to follow it because we don't want to be exiled again. They were trying to be perfect. And the Pharisees did believe in resurrection, but the vast, vast majority didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and they didn't believe that he had actually raised from the dead. But they did believe in resurrection. They believed in miracles and spirits and angels. So you could call them moralists, the Pharisees. You maybe even call them conservatives. And then on this side, another group emerges, and they're called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, you could call them liberals. They were rationalists. They were thought with logic. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in spirits or angels or resurrection. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They, they didn't even believe in the Old Testament. They just believed in the first five books, the Torah. And so you have these two groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, conservatives, liberals. Paul kind of aligns with one, but not really. But with one statement, similar to today, with one statement, these two groups are at each other's throats. And Paul, even though he says he's a Pharisee, he shows us he's not really because he's not jumping in and fighting with them. And so he sits back, which to me points out the second big thing that Jesus' followers need to know in a heated political environment. And that is you don't have to participate in every fight you're invited to. You don't have to. You shouldn't. Listen, I'm not telling you not to participate in the system of government. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you you can't align politically or socially somewhere. Even Paul says, I guess if I'm anything, I'm a bit of a Pharisee. You can have convictions. You can have opinions. You guys, I have some opinions. I have some thoughts. You'll never hear them, but I have them. And if my opinions and my thoughts will in any way create an obstacle to someone potentially finding Jesus, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Because my allegiance is to him and my desire is that he be glorified above all else. And that should be the desire of all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. See, if you ask any politically driven Christian, politically driven Christian, what are the most important things in their life? And you'll probably hear something along the lines of faith, family, country. For those who are politically driven. Faith, family, country. As if they're mutually exclusive. As if God is his own separate category. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't say, let me be more important than every area of your life. Jesus doesn't say, let me be number one, and then after that, like anything goes. Jesus says, let me rule in every area of your life. I want it all. Every corner of your life. I want it to belong to me. So it's not faith, family, and country. It's Jesus ruling in my family. 
Jesus ruling in my opinions, Jesus ruling in my thoughts, Jesus ruling in my relationships, Jesus ruling over everything if our desire is to glorify him. And so is your goal in life to glorify him? Is your desire to draw others to him? And if you say yes, does your life reflect that? Earlier in the book of Acts, James, the half-brother of uh, Jesus, he says, as believers, we shouldn't make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. Meaning, if there's something that you are doing that is creating a barrier or pushing people away from the person of Jesus, knock it off. And if you're one of those, well, I tell it like it is type of people. I'm sorry, I'm just brutally honest, and that's just how I am. I just tell it like it is. Well, to you, I say, why don't you tell it like it is about Jesus? You want to be brutally honest. Why don't you be brutally honest about all the ways you were messed up? Why don't you be brutally honest about all the ways you're still messed up? Why don't you tell it like it is that you used to be dead and now you're alive? Why don't you tell it like it is like that? But don't pretend that hiding behind your political leanings and social convictions and just taking shots at people from afar, don't pretend that that makes you some bold hero. That just makes you look like the rest of the world. A pastor by the name of Ed Stetzer, he wrote this. He said, you can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't be both outraged and on mission. You see, you're not called to go call out and go to war with the corruption in the world. And you see a lot of believers doing that. You're not called to do that. You're not called to go fight the evil in the world. You're not called to go to war with the corruption in the world. You are called to allow Jesus Christ to go to war with the corruption that exists inside of you. And then after he does and he reigns victorious, you are called to go and tell people that he's been victorious. you never believe what he did for me. You're not going to fix the world. You're not going to clean up the corruption. You aren't going to change someone's mind by telling them how evil and how stupid they are. And if you haven't learned that by now, I don't know what to tell you. And I know that the world's going to pick at you, and I know that the world's going to demand that you take sides, and I know that the world will demand that you dig your feet in and fight every single time there's an issue. You have to take a side, but you don't. And Jesus doesn't take a side. Jesus stands in the middle arms extended to both, saying, you can all come and bow down to me, and I'll fix the mess. And Jesus calls us to the middle to have our arms extended to both sides and say, once you come, we'll serve you, we'll love you, we'll tell you what Jesus is all about. And so, you don't have to participate in every fight you're invited to. So Paul's dragged off to prison, and then we wrap up with this large portion of Scripture starting at verse 11. Says this, it says, the following night in prison, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul, therefore, now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. They say, go talk to the Roman officials. Tell them you just want to 
continue to investigate him and we'll catch him on the way and we'll kill him. Now the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not, do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the government. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him. He's painting himself as a hero. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Look what I did for this Roman citizen. I saved his life. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Now this is a big chunk of scripture and I think it'd be easy to read this and at first glance think, Paul escaped again. God delivered Paul again. They were going to kill Paul just like they tried to kill him before and God made a way for him to escape. And while it is true that God delivers Paul from death, the chains actually stay on. Paul is still a prisoner. And if you rem remember from last week, all kinds of people were pleading for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. People were actually having visions and saying, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Please don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen. And I wonder if those conversations are in Paul's head. I mean, we just saw that Paul's not a superhero. We have him sinning in Scripture, disrespecting someone in power. I wonder if the human side of Paul showed its face again. Why didn't I just listen? I'm so stubborn. I went through all this to come to Jerusalem, and I took up an offering for these people. I try to share the gospel, and here I am again in prison. And then the passage says the Lord shows up and says what? Take courage, Paul. I'm not finished with you yet. And you'd assume, right? You'd assume that this would be the moment where the prison doors rattle and the chains fall off of Paul's hands and feet. Actually, if you remember a couple months back, this is the same prison that Peter the disciple, this is the same prison that he was locked in. It's a prison called the Antonia Fortress. And God broke Peter's chains and set him free. And it was so amazing and miraculous that Peter actually thought he was dreaming. Do you remember this story? An angel, an angel showed up and poked Peter because he was asleep. and said, Peter, what are you doing? Wake up. You're free. 
And now Paul is in the same exact prison. Some historians believe maybe even the same exact prison cell, and the Lord is standing beside him. It was an angel for Peter, it's the Lord for Paul. Why am I emphasizing so strongly that Peter was delivered? Because even though Paul is in the same prison, locked in maybe even the same chains, with the Lord standing beside him, Paul is not going to be set free. Paul is actually going to remain in chains for basically the rest of his life. He's going to remain a prisoner for pretty much the rest of his life. And I say this to you because I know that some of you this morning are in chains. I know that some of you this morning are in the valley. Some of you are waiting to be delivered. But I want you to see first from Peter's deliverance and Paul's imprisonment that sometimes God delivers you and that's amazing and that's awesome. And then other times God is going to give you strength to endure as a prisoner. And that's awesome too. Which brings us to our last point. And that's in God's kingdom, sometimes winning looks like losing. In God's kingdom, sometimes winning looks like losing. You see, for the rest of Paul's life, for the rest of Paul's life, he is going to fall under the category of what this world would call a monumental loser. He's going to spend the rest of his life in chains. No money, no possessions, nothing to his name. People are going to continue to call all kinds of names and spread lies and rumors about Paul. People in political power are going to try to strong arm Paul into taking a side and call him a coward when he doesn't. People are going to start trying to declare that Paul stands for nothing because he won't take sides and participate. And eventually Paul is going to be put to death in Rome. By the world standards, Paul loses badly. But by kingdom standards, the gospel is going to explode yet again and it's going to take Rome by storm. But Christians there aren't going to seek to overthrow the government. They're not going to seek to institute legislation. They're not going to try to get their most trusted leader in control. They're not even going to question or challenge the authority that's there. Instead, those Christians are going to lose willingly. They're going to give away everything they have. They're going to give their lives away. They're going to love the losers who exist in society. They're going to show mercy that can't be found anywhere else. And they're going to say, check this out. You can keep your worldly power. We don't need it. We found something better. And the message of the gospel and the goodness of God is going to impact so many lives in Rome that eventually Paul and a lot of other people are going to die for it. But not because Jesus' followers are trying to change the government or control society, but instead because people are finding something so good in the person of Jesus that they don't need the government or society to agree with them anymore. And so they step back, we're good, you can have it. We're not playing your game anymore. And they're going to lay down their lives, metaphorically and some of them literally. Do you know why they'd live like this? What would drive a person to live like this? Do you have any idea why we should live like this? Because in a politically and socially charged world where everything comes down to winning, Jesus arrives in a dirty manger. And Jesus grows up in a poor household. And Jesus allows everyone to talk trash about him and discredit his name his entire life. And then Jesus chooses rejects to hand the keys of his ministry to. And then Jesus rides into town not on a steed but on a donkey. Jesus spends his time loving those the world would call losers. Jesus allows the enemy to put him 
in chains. Jesus watches his closest friends abandon him when he's at his most vulnerable. Jesus allows corrupt and evil politicians and people to tear his flesh apart. Jesus allows vindictive, politically charged leaders to sentence him to death. And then Jesus allows those who have invaded his home country to nail him to a piece of wood and make fun of him until he dies. By every worldly, logical, rational metric, the creator of the universe lost horribly. Why? So you could win. So you could win, so that you could experience life, so that you could be a child of God. And if the same Jesus who saved your life and saved your soul requires that you lose sometimes by worldly standards so that other people might come to win through his sacrifice, are you willing to do that? And if the same Jesus asks that you let the world slander you and judge you and say whatever they're going to say about you, you stay loyal to him because that's going to make his name famous, are you willing to do that? And if Jesus is calling you to bite your tongue about the things that don't really impact the kingdom, but be very vocal about the things that do, are you willing to do that? Let's pray. Jesus, we look around and we recognize that things are broken. We recognize that we live in a nation that is full of corruption and evil and polarization and there's a lot of division and hate. God, we recognize that you have not called us to participate in that. You have set us apart. You've given us something we can put our faith in, something so strong that it doesn't matter what the rest of the world does, that our faith in you, our foundation in you is not shaken. God, if nothing else, I pray that you at least give this community, this room full of people and watching online, I at least pray that you give this group of people the courage to step away from the junk that's going on and look different. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but, but because we want people to come to know you. We have this desire that people know you. We know that living life like the rest of the world is not going to do that. God, I pray that we are so enamored that you would lose so that we could win, that we are so blown away by the fact that despite how perfect and amazing you are, that you came to this world and lived a perfect life and let everything go against you so that we'd have a chance and an opportunity to say yes to you and experience life and love and grace that just cannot be described. God, I pray that that blows us away in such a powerful way. When we walk out of this place, our lives just look drastically different from everyone around us. We can only do that with you. God, we love you. Praise you. Stick to us as we leave this place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.